Okay, we are ready to begin our our class, our third our third installment of our Wednesday night summer series. And John Helbig is here. Uh, finally, he 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 came from Conroe. So imagine how difficult that was. How long have you been driving? Three hours from Conroe. All right. So we'll just settle down and breathe a little deep breath. John was born in, in you say Natchez, Natchez, Mississippi, Natchez, Mississippi, graduated summa cum laude from Harding University. He's been involved in ministry for 33 years. He preached for a small congregation during during your, his last 18 months of college. So he's been preaching for quite a while, worked as a youth minister in Port Arthur, Texas, and in Houston, Texas. He's been involved with preaching in Oxford, Alabama, Beaumont, Texas, and he's been with the Longmire congregation since 2002, 2002, 16 years. So um, great. He's worked with church camps, campaigns, lectureships, mission trips. He has his wife, Carrie. They, they'll have their 27th wedding anniversary in August. So that's that's neat. And then Carrie grew up in Beaumont. She's a licensed customer service representative for State Farm Insurance. And then she worked as a church secretary for 10 years. And they have... Uh, Son Caleb, he works in Conroe. Claudia is 20 and will begin her junior year at Harding this fall, majoring in molecular and cellular biology. Why? No, I'm just playing. Great. No, I think that's great. I think I was just being silly, but it's it's above my pay grade. Let's have a prayer and then John will speak to us for a while. We're looking forward to that. Let's have a prayer. Our Father God, thank you so much for safety. Thank you for rain, but also thank you for safety and and we ask that you be with those people still out on the roads. We pray for safety for them, and thank you for that. Thank you for bringing us all here tonight uh, for, for one reason, and that's because we're, we're members of your son's body, and we're here to learn and, and to praise you later on. But we want to glorify you in everything that we do, and thank you for giving us opportunities to do that. We're so grateful for people in our lives that make differences, that bless us, that challenge us, that carry us, that push us. And we're so grateful for people in our lives that comfort us as well. And we pray that we'll be those kinds of people to each other, to all the people around us. And we pray that you'll be with those people who are, who are um, struggling physically with, with places to live, places to stay, and food to have. And we pray that as Christians we'll reach out uh, to them. But more importantly, we pray that we'll, we'll take the opportunities to reach out to, to the world with your word. We pray that we will... Uh, shrink ourselves and and augment you and and magnify you in in our everyday lives and everything we do and think. Thank you for forgiveness for the way that you put up with us and the way you forgive us when we ask and we do ask that now and and we do appreciate that how loving and merciful and and gracious you are. Thank you so much for Jesus, what he he's done, what what's happening for us for the for eternity, and we pray that we will have the zeal that we need to share that information and that excitement and that hope with other people around us. Thank you so much for life, this way of life, this quality of life, and the blessings of life that we have by being your son's body. All these things we pray in Jesus. Amen. It is good to be here with you tonight. I was beginning to think that... Uh, this might be the first time in 16 years of uh, being in the Houston area and traveling uh, to places on Wednesday nights that I might not uh, make uh, my appointed round. Uh, 
Um, I had one time that I had a automobile accident, a couple of blocks, a uh, 249, uh, and it just so happened that there was enough time for the wrecker to come take my car away and to drop me off at the 249 church building, and I had to wait for my wife to come get me anyway, so why not do your lesson? So I was able to do that, and I got to Jersey Village with about three minutes to spare one time uh, because the last mile on uh, uh, the Beltway took 45 minutes. Uh, so... Uh, this was my worst experience with uh, Houston traffic I think I've had. But if you don't count the fact that I had to go to the restroom before coming in here, I'd have been here on time tonight. Uh, but uh, some things are more important than others. If you'll take your Bibles and turn, uh, John chapter 6 is where our key text is going to be uh, tonight. Uh, it's good to have fellowship with you again. Good to see Alan again. Alan has come to Conroe many times and knows what it's like to see that time frame grow longer and longer and longer over the years. And uh, this year we're doing something different. We're doing an in-house summer series. We're using our men, and uh, it's, it's exciting to see some of our men uh, that we've not had stand up and to take that kind of a role before do fantastic jobs presenting the Word of God. So we've been excited about that, but look forward to having some folks like Alan in in the, the uh, years to come. I ran across an article a few weeks ago that I had seen years back and uh, tells about a, a little boy in 1960 who was found nearly starved to death after staying by the burned-out wreckage of the plane in which his father had died 15 days before. His name was Walter Cedar, and uh, Walter was eight years old, and uh, Walter had been waiting 15 days for his mama to come get him. Well, the Royal Canadian Air Force and uh, civilian pilots and uh, commercial pilots had all been scanning a uh, an area of about 70,000 square miles for those 15 days, but it had been unsuccessful until the 15th day, a commercial airline pilot saw the little boy standing on a rock waving feebly uh, to try to get some attention. The good news is that Walter Cedar survived. The bad news, he was near starvation. And the even worse news was that just a few feet from the wreckage, there was a survival package that contained 24 days worth of rations. But Walter didn't know that there was a survival package that contained those rations. He didn't know what was in that box. And he nearly starved to death. Well, the writer of that little article went on to talk about how there's a lot of people around us who are malnourished, a lot of people around us who are starving spiritually because they don't know. They don't know that we have what can feed their soul. And we have what can nourish them spiritually, what can feed them and what can give them life. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, 
for they'll be satisfied or they'll be filled. And so if someone is searching for righteousness, the ability to have that hunger satisfied is very real. And it's very possible. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus told those gathered around, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Now we're going to take a look at a passage that comes just a little bit before that declaration about Jesus being the bread of life. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 to 17, we read, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple and He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst any more nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's a sweet scene, isn't it? I want to be among that number. Don't you? And we're surrounded by people every day who will want to be among that number if they know about that wonderful, satisfying gift of life. The text I want us to consider tonight is in John chapter 6. I invite you to look with me there and we're going to look at the first 15 verses. Introduce my daughter Claudia is here with me and she was introduced, but also our friend uh, Roddy Rodriguez uh, from Longmire is here with us tonight and appreciate him coming along for the, for the experience uh, tonight. Uh, but he kept me grounded a little bit on, on the drive. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, He distributed it to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, He said to His disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. 
Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The first verse of John chapter 6 begins after these things. And so I want us to think about the things that preceded this event, which helps us understand some of what was taking place with this event. And to see the things that precede this, we go back to Mark's account of this event, and we find that in Mark chapter 6. Well, when you look to Mark chapter 6, you look at verses 7 through 13, you find that Jesus had been teaching His disciples. He had been preparing His disciples. And in that text, He sends His disciples out to preach. Go and preach repentance to the people. And so He sends them out and He prepares them that some people are going to be receptive, other people are not going to be receptive. And so He sends them out in pairs. After that, in, John, in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 32, we read about John the Baptist's execution. And then we read about that news of John's death reaching Jesus and his disciples. Well, you can imagine the impact that that had on them when they learned of his death. And so in their sorrow and in their need to, to just regroup themselves, Jesus decides to send the crowd away and he and his disciples get in a boat and they're going to go off to a secluded place. They're going to spend some time grieving. They're going to spend some time loving each other. They're going to spend some time getting regrouped. We all need that sometimes, don't we? Well, we get to Mark chapter 6, verses 33 to 34, and we find Jesus and his disciples arriving at this secluded place that they're trying to get away to, and we read that the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, He saw a large crowd and He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And He began to teach them many things. So Jesus is ready to slip away from the crowds. He's ready to get His disciples away from the crowds, yet the crowds ran on foot and beat them to their secluded place. One writer said, Some scholars think they left an area near Capernaum to go to an area near Bethsaida. And if that was the case, then the distance by boat would have been about four miles. The distance on land around the end of the sea would have been about ten miles. So in the time that it took Jesus and His disciples to row these four miles, the crowd runs ten miles to be there ahead of them, and they apparently picked up some folks along the way. And so here Jesus, have you ever just needed to get away? Just really needed to get away from it all, and you get to your getaway point, and you find more people than you just left? Well, that's what happened to Jesus and His disciples. I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, I get a little frustrated. And I'm not always as uh, kind and cordial as Jesus was at those moments. But Jesus looked at the crowd. And immediately we see that word compassion attached to Jesus. Jesus saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. What did God think 
about the shepherds of Israel. (sighs) Didn't have a lot of good things to say about the shepherds of Israel, did he? Ezekiel chapter 34 is one example where the shepherds of Israel are really condemned. They're not doing their job. They're not caring for the flock. They're caring for themselves only. They're not caring for the things of God. Jesus sees the crowd in His day as shepherdless sheep. Jesus had a few pretty straightforward things to say to the religious leaders of His day, didn't He? The Jewish leaders caught some pretty hard words from Jesus because they were not doing the things that God had for them to do. And so he's trying to get things back on track. The Word of God has always pointed to a day when the good shepherd would gather his sheep and pasture and protect his flock. In fact, just a few chapters after this, in John chapter 10, we're going to read about that good shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. And we know that good shepherd to be Jesus Himself. And so the people are gathered around Jesus. Jesus is showing compassion for them. Jesus is teaching the people. The people are amazed at His teaching. The people are hopeful that He is the Messiah. But we know from being familiar with the Gospels that they were looking for a leader, but they were looking for an earthly leader, weren't they? You see, their shepherds had them thinking very physically in terms of of a kingdom. And they were still thinking that one day we as the Israelites are going to be the dominant power of the world and, and there was nothing greater in their minds than really giving it to the Romans because of the way they had been treated. And one day they're going to all be in subjection to us. But that's not the kingdom that God had in mind, was it? And so there's this constant battle between the physical and the spiritual aspects of things. And Jesus is going to be trying to bring those crowds around to thinking spiritually. But He knew if He's going to bring the crowds around to thinking spiritually, He had a smaller group that He needed to get thinking more spiritually, and that was His disciples. And even smaller, those apostles that were following Because even up to his death, they still struggled with the difference between the physical and the spiritual aspect of all that Jesus was talking about. And so he's going to teach them some things in this amazing wilderness setting. And so here they are. It's getting late. They're in a remote area. They are in a secluded area. They are in a wilderness area. Apparently some of them may have had to travel as much as 10 miles to get to this place. And all of a sudden, somebody starts thinking it's getting late. And they're probably thinking, and I'm getting kind of hungry myself, and so surely this crowd's going to get hungry. And so they bring the subject up to Jesus. As we look to other gospel accounts, we find that the disciples are the ones that initiate this conversation about something to eat. 
And in Mark's account in chapter 6 and verse 37, when the subject of the people being hungry and needing to eat, send them away to find food somewhere. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus looks at His disciples and He says, You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. In John's account, Jesus tests Philip. Where are we supposed to buy that much bread to feed all these people? And Philip's got the money matter in, in thought. He says, well, it would take 200 denarii. It would take 200 days worth of laborers' wages to pay for that much bread. You know, Jesus, we don't have six months' worth of salary sitting here to feed this many people. And so, how are we going to deal with the problem? Now, I find it interesting that Andrew speaks up and says, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? You ever wondered why he said that? I don't know if Andrew was expressing the impossibility of their condition. Well... Jesus, all we've got is this little boy's lunch over here. Or was Andrew hoping that Jesus was about to do something? I'm not sure. I know nobody expected what happened to take place except for Jesus. One writer said there are many indications in this incident that while Jesus was viewing the situation and operating on a spiritual level, the disciples could only see the natural situation. They recognized very rightly that the hour was late. Moreover, while Jesus had gone to great lengths to be in a desert place, the disciples viewed the setting with an alarm. They failed to see that it is exactly such a location when one is incapable of helping himself that God can work his redemption. He goes on to say, if they failed to see the significance of the desert place, they also failed to see that Jesus had already been feeding the people the most important food they could receive, the Word of God. Most likely, they wanted to know if the disciples had eyes to see and ears to hear. And would they see beyond the mere physical hunger and give the people the nourishment they really needed? And so what happens in this situation? Well, the little that they had, five loaves and two fish, what amounted to a little boy's lunch, the little that they had, they gave it to Jesus. And now what happens? Well, first of all, He gave thanks for it. And then He distributed it among the 5,000 people. Now I want you to be sure you don't overlook the first part of that because you need to pay attention as you read through the Gospels how often the giving of thanks precedes the blessing. Over and over and over. And so when He gave thanks and He distributed it, they all ate until they were full and then twelve baskets full were collected. That's a whole lot more than they started with. And it was collected at the end. And the reason I emphasize this giving of thanks 
in John chapter 6 and verse 23, we start to get to another scene and we read, There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate after the Lord had given thanks. Now if I was going to refer back to that previous event that took place, I would probably say near to the place where Jesus took this little bit of food and did this amazing miracle and had all of this food left over, but that's not what it said. It said near to the place where he had given thanks. Folks, that's an emphasis there. That's important. That's important. The thanks preceded the blessing. And that's an important principle in Scripture. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you give them something to eat. Now from the perspective of the disciples, that was an overwhelming command, wasn't it? But we need to remember that God never gives us a task for which he does not also give us the resources to accomplish. I'm going to repeat that. God never gives us a task for which he does not also give us the resources to accomplish. How much do you have? Well, Jesus, we have five loaves and two fish. <sighs> Wouldn't make you feel all warm and fuzzy at the moment, would it? When you're just told to give the people something to eat. Think about the despair of such an overwhelming need. Think about Moses. <laughs> Moses leading probably two million plus people out of Egypt. We're studying Exodus in our Sunday sermons right now. and Our uh, lads to leaders are studying Exodus for Bible Bowl next year. And Moses leading like two million people through the desert and all of a sudden they cry out, I'm hungry, or they cry out, I'm thirsty. And Moses is in the middle of the desert. What am I supposed to do? It's overwhelming, isn't it? One writer said the disciples' sense of despair was hardly less than that of Moses. They weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. It goes on. Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? Moses had to learn that although he was the instrument through which God was going to provide this blessing to the people, he was not the source. He was not the source. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15, referring to that despair of Moses, it says, You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from the rock for them for their thirst. A problem? Two million people in the desert and they're hungry and thirsty? Yeah, it's a problem, but not for God. God brought manna from heaven. God brought quail when he needed it. God brought water out of a rock. They didn't have a problem, did they? Other than the problem of trusting God. Jesus took a little boy's lunch, gave thanks for it, broke it into pieces, fed some 5,000 men, had 12 baskets full left over. The apostles, the disciples, had vital lessons to learn. One of those lessons was that their responsibility was great. Another was... Their ability, their personal ability, was totally inadequate. We have those same lessons to learn. Our responsibility, our God-given responsibility is great. Yet our personal 
ability is inadequate. It's inadequate. So how do we reconcile such a discrepancy? Great responsibility, inadequate ability. Well, the first thing we have to do is consider our sources. Our resources, I'm sorry. Consider our resources. And one of our resources we have is one another. We are each other's resource for this spiritual life. God's given me some abilities, but it's inadequate to the great past completely. And God's given you some abilities, which personally by yourself is inadequate to the task. But if I take what I have and you take what you have and we come together with it, then we can do more, can't we? And we can be more. Philip and Andrew didn't have any food. But a little boy had a lunch. We need to see people around us as spiritual assets for our spiritual walk. And we need to see ourselves as assets to the people around us. When I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ, I need to see resources that will help me be a better Christian every day. And when I look at my brothers and sisters in Christ, I need to see myself as an asset that can help you be better in your walk with the Lord each day. And when we all look at the people around us who aren't acknowledging God right now, we need to see ourselves as an instrument through which God can do wonderful things even in their lives. The Christian life is not to be a selfish, competitive life. We belong to one another. We have the opportunity to join hands and hearts and to grow stronger and to feed hungry souls around us. How do we reconcile the discrepancy? Great responsibility, inadequate ability personally. Well, we need to consider our resources. One of those is one another. The other is, we're not the power source, but we have a power source. I understand your theme for this year includes, He must increase. We have a power source. The disciples gave Jesus what they had and he took care of the rest, didn't he? 5,000 men. Why? Because he gave thanks. Do we do that enough? Or do we do more complaining? (laughs) Do we stress more what we can't do or what he can do? When we stress what we can't do, then we need to start decreasing. We need to stress what He can do. He must increase. There's a song that's out of 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 that says, I am mine no more. I am mine no more. I've been bought with blood. I am mine no more. No longer just what can I do. Now it is what can He do through me. I'm not the source. He is. I'm an instrument through which that source can do His bidding. At Longmire, we recently had a vacation Bible school and we focused on the little shepherd boy David going against the giant Goliath. 
And when David shows up on the fighting scene, he finds all of the fighting men of Israel and even King Saul cowering in fear because this giant is challenging them and nobody will step up and take him on. But this little shepherd boy said, I will defeat Goliath in the name of the Lord. And he did. In 1 Samuel 17, 37, he tells David, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And in 1 Samuel 17, 45 and 46, he comes up to that giant Goliath who's laughing at this little boy coming out to him. And he says, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And he did. But he knew who was the source that could bring about victory. And now Jesus knows that his time on earth was limited. He was trying to prepare His disciples for their task when He was gone. He knew the task was going to feel overwhelming at times. He wanted them to know what He could do when they gave Him what they had to give. And so we need to ask ourselves, what do I have to give God? What do I have to give God? Does it seem like a little boy's lunch compared to 5,000 hungry men? Yes. But what can the Lord do with a little boy's lunch in the face of 5,000 hungry men? He can give them all plenty to eat and He can take up more leftover than you started with. Give yourself. Give what you have. Give who you are to Jesus and He can bless it and He can multiply it. Is it about 22? Do you know anybody who's hungry? And I'm not talking about from physical nourishment. But what about somebody who's hungry for purpose? Hungry for meaning? Hungry for contentment in their life? You know anybody who's lonely? Do you know anyone who needs Jesus Christ? Do you know anyone starving spiritually? We know those folks, don't we? The need is great. And yes, my personal ability is inadequate, and so is yours. But the Lord can take what we offer Him. And through what we have to give, the Lord can do great things for His honor and for His glory. If Jesus can feed a multitude with a little boy's lunch, what do you think He can do with what you have to give Him? But in order for Him to bless it and to multiply it, we have to give it to Him, don't we? We have to give it to Him. We have to give Him our very selves. That's where it starts. We have to give Him our very selves. 
We have to give Him what we have to give. God has entrusted every one of us with abilities and with talents. They're different, but we all have them. And we have to give them to Him if He's going to bless them and multiply them. We have to give Him who we are. You know, we're not all identical, are we? We're not clones. We have different personalities. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But we're different. But God can take who we are and can use us in uniquely special situations like He can use no one else. If we give ourselves to Him, if we give Him what He's entrusted to us. There's a song that used to be in some of our songbooks entitled, Little is Much When God is in It. In the harvest field now ripen, there's a work for all to do. Hark, the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and He'll not forget His own. Are you laid aside from service, body worn with toil and care? You can still be in the battle in the sacred place of prayer. When the conflict here is ended and our race on earth is run, He will say if we are faithful, welcome home, my child. Well done. Little is much if God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you'll go in Jesus' name. What do you have that God has entrusted to you? Are you willing to give it to Jesus? If you do, He can bless it, He can multiply it, and He can do abundant things for His honor and glory with it. May God bless us to trust Him. Thank you.